Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon and former co-host of Pet Talk on Nat Geo Wild and just all around pet lover. I want to send a big thank you to all the supporters coming over from my previous podcast, The Dr. Courtney Show, where we spoke on some really, really captivating guests. And now, like we talked about in the last podcast, these guests have a new home over here at Anything Possible. As many of you know, this is a podcast where we get to talk to really fascinating and engaging people about pets, animals, and just veterinary medicine in general. And this particular episode, it is no different. This is going to be one of the most fascinating and engaging guests that we've had for a really long time. And my goal is to just drill down on some of the many ways that animals influence our everyday lives and why anything is truly possible when it comes to the deep relationships we have with animals. Whether you're a pet parent, a veterinary medical professional, or even those who are just passively curious about animals, my goal is to make sure that these conversations give you a reason to celebrate that human, human-animal bond. And, you know, this episode and this conversation is really special to me. And there's a good chance that this conversation will hold a very special place in the minds and the hearts of just about everyone listening, you know, on their commute today, because what we're talking about today is health. We should all want to maintain and maximize our personal health, but with pet parents and anyone in the pet health community, we want to maximize the health of our four-legged loved ones. I mean, the goal for most of us, or at least it should be, should be to be the best caretakers and health providers that we can be for our pets and, and just animals in general. And a large part of that health conversation is centered around maintaining a healthy weight. For those of you who know me well, and, and, and listen, uh, there's a lot of you out there, you understand I have challenges with portion control. I mean, like most people, I enjoy eating. And when food is made well and, and I'm hungry, well, it's, it's game over for hunger. You know, I mean, it's no match for my hunger pains when I get close to food. And I recognize that's not good, but I'm working to change that day by day. But I may be in an uphill fight due to a hormone called leptin. In 1995, Dr. Jeffrey Friedman of the Rockefeller University discovered a molecule called leptin that is secreted by fat cells and tells the brain how much fat the body has. If your brain believes you're too thin, leptin signals your brain to eat. Essentially, leptin is trying to protect you from starving by making sure you stay fat. In some obese people, the leptin set point may be too high. And is, as is the case with everything in science, the story is a little bit more complex than that. Now we know that leptin is simply an instrument in an entire orchestra of hormones that signal the brain to eat, including ghrelin and adiponectin. And interestingly enough, we know that body weight is strongly inherited, almost as strongly as height. Children adopted as infants ended up with weights like those of their biological parents, and twins, when they're reared apart, ended up with almost nearly identical body weights. Many pet parents understand that weight management and obesity prevention is vitally important as aspects of preventative health. I mean, listen, we've seen shows like The Biggest Loser that was undergirded by the fact that obesity and poor health are inextricably linked. We've also read countless articles sounding the alarm of obesity in general. Some reports indicate 160 million Americans are either obese or overweight. Nearly three quarters of American men and 60% of women 
are obese and overweight. And there's major challenges for Americans' children, too, with nearly 30% of boys and girls under the age of 20 are either obese or overweight. And that's up from 19% in 1980. When I started thinking about this subject, one thing that jumped out to me is how upfront and in your face this subject is. I mean, as soon as someone walks in the room, you pretty much know what size they are. You know if they're large or small. And although we have our own personal standards about our weight and about ourselves, we pretty much know whether someone is overweight. At least that's how it is for humans. But for pet obesity, the degree of recognition is not quite the same. Whether it's due to the diversity between the breeds or that luxurious fur coat they all wear, almost all of them, or just a general lack of awareness, many overweight pets go underrecognized and underdiagnosed by veterinarians. Over half dogs and cats in the United States are now classified as overweight by their veterinarian, and the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, places obesity among the most common nutritional disorders in dogs and cats. I mean, to be sure, Obesity is pernicious enough to be deeply concerning, but the ramifications of obesity make the disease even more harmful. Osteoarthritis, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and decreased life expectancy are all linked to obesity in pets. But thanks to doctors like our guest today, the epidemic of pet obesity is starting to get the attention that it deserves. Today, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Ernie Ward. He's truly a luminary. In the world of pet health media, he's been one of the leading voices in the battle against pet obesity. And when it comes to this topic, there are very few people on this planet who would be more perfect to talk to than Dr. Ward. Because this is a space where we explore the depths of the human-animal bond and how deeply we're connected to pets, I'm going to ask Dr. Ward to take a deep dive into some of the similarities (laughs) between obesity among us as people and obesity in pets. And what are the major differences? But before we get to our exciting guest, I want to be sure to let everyone know out there how they can get in contact with me. If you have any questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you can reach me at Dr. Courtney DVM on Twitter and Instagram. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority, but not exclusivity. So we'll pretty much answer anything. So let's just pause for a few brief moments from a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll reconnect on the flip side to talk about obesity and pets. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Doggo Suds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Doggo Sud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Doggo Suds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. The war against pet obesity can be complicated and multifactorial, but we are joined by Dr. Ernie Ward, who will help to clarify things for us. And listen, as I mentioned, he has been on the forefront of this movement as early as 1999. In 2005, he founded the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention to help raise awareness on the dangers of excessive weight in dogs and cats. He's a published author uh, called Chow Hounds, Why Our Dogs Are Getting Fatter. That was in 2010. And he co-authored 
the American Animal Hospital Association's weight management guides for dogs and cats in 2014. As if to underscore how seriously he takes fitness and healthy living, Dr. Ward is a certified personal trainer and a USA Triathlon certified coach and multiple Ironman finisher. It is an absolute pleasure to have you, Dr. Ward. Thanks so much for joining us here on Anything Possible. Ah, Courtney, it's great to be back with you. I mean, and again, uh, congratulations on the new podcast. Uh, you're really doing an amazing uh, thing for pets all over the world. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's really nice to hear that because the reality is I've had you before and I'm going to try to, I'll just put it out there. I'm going to try to have you as much as I possibly can. You're, <laughs> uh, you're just so fascinating to talk to and you're so loaded, just compact with so much information. Before we jump right into it, because I, I really kind of want to give everybody listening just kind of a, not a master plan or a master class and pet obesity and how to prevent it. But before we do that, would you mind just setting the scene for us? Talk about a little bit of your journey, you know, partly within veterinary medicine, but how that led you to be on the forefront in the fight against pet obesity. Yeah, Courtney, like uh, many veterinarians, I was in clinical practice and seeing a lot of patients for what I considered avoidable medical conditions. I was seeing a lot of complications of osteoarthritis, a lot of joint injuries that you're very familiar with as a surgeon. You know, I was seeing a lot of metabolic disorders like diabetes and cats. And so as you're beginning your career as a veterinarian, you start to say, why am I seeing all of these diseases and how can I prevent it? And that led me to sort of focus on the, the foundation of these conditions, which was excess weight gain, and more specifically, adipose tissue, which you alluded to earlier as sort of driving some of these hormones that we'll talk about uh, later on. So you're a young veterinarian, you're looking at all these patients that are suffering needlessly, and you say, how can I help? And quite frankly, you know, I started relying and leaning into my experiences in ultra-endurance athletics. Like you, you know, I had, uh, as an adult, in, embraced athletics and physical fitness. I think, Courtney, you were into bodybuilding, if I recall correctly. And, yeah, I was, uh, I was a physique competitor, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, we sort of then said, wait a second, why aren't we talking about these things in our profession, because you and I were, you know, surrounded by people talking about nutrition, training schedules, you know, aerobic, anaerobic activities, HIIT training, I mean, all these things, and yet none of that is transferring over to, to pets. And so, quite frankly, I said, how can I begin this conversation? I was active, you know, already had been writing and lecturing on other topics in veterinary medicine. And just one night, uh, you know, really, I always tell the story, but Dr. Stephen Budsberg, who's a surgeon at University of Georgia, past president of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, one night he said, Ernie, you know, I'm, I'm tired of hearing you talk about pet obesity. Why don't you do something about it? And that dinner conversation led to us founding uh, the, the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention and then, you know, starting our research. Dr. Budsberg, great guy. I had, uh, uh, he published an article recently on tramadol, which is you know kind of swept the nation. So I absolutely, absolutely. love that. You know, the uh, it's really interesting you bring up that your own lived experience led to you helping pets because I think it really underscores that human animal bond. And and uh, you right. say, hey, this is kind of what my experience was in life. How can I give pets that benefit? And I think that's what really drives us as veterinarians, taking those benefits and those ideas and seeing how pets can benefit. In your opinion, when we look at the benefits of maintaining a healthy weight, when you look at the opposite as far as obesity and overweight pets, why do you feel like it's so dangerous? We had just talked about uh, osteoarthritis. You had talked about type 2 diabetes. Also, as a surgeon, I'm seeing dogs who are 
basically smush face breeds. We call these brachycephalic dogs, dogs with excessive weight around their throat and their face. It's extremely difficult to breathe. What are some of the dangers you've seen from pet obesity and pets being overweight? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. It's quality of life. So when I look at my pet patients, you know, I'm careful not to over promise. And so sometimes we say, oh gosh, you know, your pet will live longer, which the evidence is pretty clear that if they're kept at a lean body mass, they will live longer. But that's a tough ask, right? You know, can, can you right. make my dog or cat live longer? But what I can say is we can help them have a higher quality of life while they are here. And I think that, you know, when I look at my friend, Dr. Alex German from the UK, some of the early research uh, that was done based on some stuff that we had done and then you know translated over there basically showed that a dog that loses as little as six percent of their body weight begins to see demonstrable validated improvements in the quality of life by their pet owner when you start looking at 10 percent weight loss it is significant so this means that a hundred pound labrador retriever that needs to be 75 to 85 pounds for example if they can just drop you know, six to 10 pounds, Courtney, their life improves. And that's really where I start. And then the second thing is, okay, look at all these comorbidities that we've discussed, particularly crippling arthritis, you know, diabetes that you have for the rest of the pet's life. You know, you've got things like kidney failure that is directly related to obesity, specifically the adipose tissue hormones. But you know, when I look at all of those things adding up, I say, wait a second, the reason that you want to pay attention to your pet's weight is to improve the quality of life and then secondarily longevity and then tertiarily or third, I want right. to make sure that we are doing everything to uh, prevent other diseases. You know, you talk about Labrador retrievers. That's the classic image, right? That's the poster child of obesity is that, that Labrador retriever. When you think about other breeds, I'm thinking about breeds that I've seen as far as dogs who, for some reason, have a preponderance of, of gaining weight or have a penchant for gaining weight. And dogs that jump out to me are uh, Beagles or Dotsons, uh, of course, the Lab. Are there any other breeds that you find where pet parents say, hey, you know what? I have this breed at home. I really need to be careful about whether or not every pet parent should be conscious about it, right? But there are some breeds just due to their body conformation that could be, it could be more injurious to them or more dangerous for them to be overweight. Right. Absolutely. The top of my list, pugs, Frenchies, corgis, bulldogs, you know, those have a, we see them in our studies year after year pop up high. And of course they have body shapes and morphology that tends to cause more problems. So if a right. corgi has excess weight, then they're more likely to have lower back injury, for example. And of course, bulldogs are going to have all types of breathing disorders and so forth. So those are the breeds that pop up. But I, I want to point out one thing too. You mentioned in, in the opening the, the genetic link. And the first thing I want to say to listeners, whether you're a veterinary professional or a pet owner, is that genes do not equal destiny. And that means okay. that, you know, there's a lot of factors that influence your phenotype. So just because you may have inherited as a human or a dog or a cat, a gene that predisposes you, and that's the really important part there, that, that predisposes you to gaining weight, doesn't mean that you are now sentenced to a life of suffering from obesity. And so we know that when it comes to genetics and phenotypes or, or how those genes are expressed in, in the body, um, it's about 30% determined exclusively by the genes. So some genes you just simply can't outfox. You can't somehow manipulate. But about 70% of 
of genetic expression is influenced by environmental parameters. And this is where getting into activity levels, this is where environmental influencers like uh, exposures to certain chemicals and compounds that, that we'll talk about later, particularly some of the plastics and microplastics that we're seeing pop up in pet foods and human foods. Uh, we know that obviously an obesogenic environment where you're not moving as much, you live in an apartment, so it's hard to walk your dog or exercise yourself. So those are the types of things that influence that genetic expression. But I want to, the reason I want to mention this is because that we have bred dogs specifically to be trainable. In fact, I would argue uh, in, in my new book uh, called The Clean Pet Food Revolution, I talk about the history of dogs and how we actually brought them in and sort of what the archaeological and genetic data tells us about how we began this relationship, this sacred bond. But when we look at it, we actually selected and preferentially chose dogs who could be trained. And how do we train them? Primarily with food rewards. So that means that we have actually selected for dogs today, current day dogs, every dog, mutt, pure breed, whatever, that drive from food. So this food drive has been studied. In fact, we know the exact gene that is involved with food drive. And we know that dogs with obesity tend to have more copies of this food drive gene. And so this is where, you know, you have to say, okay, I always talk about, you know, look, we want to train with positive reinforcement. And so most people just start out with food, but you're supposed to, and you should train with food initially, you know, during those those first few weeks of puppyhood, but then immediately replace it with praise because the same gene that codes for I like food and I will work for food also says I like affection. And so all of this is sort of intertwined with dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin and the dog's brain to say, wait a second, the reward mechanism, I get it, there's food here, but gosh, I really like it when you pet me. So, you know, again, we, we want to make sure that we don't just feed into the, well, my dog has the gene for it, and therefore I can't do anything about it because you can. Well, that's fascinating stuff. And I mean, when you integrate, I love the fact that you integrate not only just personal anecdotes, but the actual, you know, down to the molecular level and to the genetic level as far as how obesity affects pets and what we know, what's our current level of knowledge in regards to why dogs are driven and, and why pets can, why we can see pets who are overweight and obese. This is for me is is key. And the reason why I enjoy this discussion and this topic so much is because it really not only talks about, hey, here are the similarities between people who are overweight and obesity in humans, but here are some of the key differences when it comes to pets. Here's what we have done, for lack of a better term, in terms of breeding and encoding for these particular genes. So when I see the in the human obesity model, people simply say, hey, listen, you you should eat less and exercise more. That can be a little bit reductive and, and simplistic, particularly because of what you just highlighted, the genes and the diversity. Essentially, there's more to it. But in the veterinary setting, do you see it as truly that simplistic as far as, hey, we've just got to exercise more and eat less? Or do you see it as a little bit more complex? It's very complex. And in fact, you know, if you've seen some of my media and writings the past couple of years, Courtney, it goes like this. We have to go beyond feed less, exercise more as our only treatment modality. Like right now in the world, the only treatment for pet obesity that veterinarians have is 
the advice of feed less, exercise more. And it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. Lifestyle changes alone don't work. If they worked, Courtney, we would not continue to see childhood obesity rates globally increase. We wouldn't see adult obesity rates skyrocketing around the world. So we know that lifestyle changes alone don't work. So this is where back a few years ago, we wrote myself and two co-authors, Dr. Julie Churchill from University of Minnesota, a lovely, lovely lady, pet obesity expert, Alex German from the UK and myself, we wrote this thing called the Global Pet Obesity Initiative. And so we we have a statement that declares three main things. And again, we now have 24 global, the largest global veterinary organizations that have signed on and support. And we're really trying to expand it, but basically it does three things that, that are important to this conversation. Number one, we wanted a uniform definition of obesity. Courtney, when I would go and sit on panels with human obesity experts to discuss how you know we could translate the medicine and work together and so forth, the first thing they would say is, well, how do you define obesity? There has not been a consensus definition around the nomenclature of obesity until we wrote it, right? I mean, this is ridiculous, but we, and we've got to do a better job. So if you're listening today and you're part of an organization, right now we've worked at a global level, but we're about to go into the state level in the United States and provincial level in Canada and so forth. But we needed a universal definition. And we really sort of leaned on our human colleagues. And we, you know, look, I, I will tell you, these are arbitrary at best, but we basically defined obesity as 30% above ideal body weight. And then, of course, we use the eight to nine on a nine point system. So, you know, okay. so you have to start somewhere. And we chose that 30% after consulting with really all of the major human obesity. And that was in line with what they said. The second thing is, if you ask somebody today, okay, what's your cat's BCS? The next question you have to ask, Courtney, is on what scale? Because right. Globally, there are three accepted body condition scales or scores that we use. Uh, there's a one to nine, a one to five, and a one to seven. In the U.S., most of us have heard of the one to nine and the one to five, but Europeans are very familiar with a one to seven scale. So again, we said, you know what, we've got to adopt a universal body condition score. And so it's a whole integer one through nine. And I do get a little bent out of shape sometimes, Courtney, when vets say, well, it's a 4.2. <laughs> I mean, this is right, right. an infinite. In fact, in the language, I kept fighting uh, with my uh, co-authors because it's like, like we have to specify whole integer, whole integer, because again, you go down in this infinite, you know, morass of complexity. So one to nine. And then the most important and contentious and the thing that we've been fighting all around the globe is to define obesity as disease. I mean, going back, you know, since 2013, the American Medical Association declared obesity as a human disease and really if you look at how does the AMA or the American Medical Association define a disease, it's pretty simple. They say, number one, does it cause an impairment of the normal functioning of some part of the body? Okay, so does that? Well, obesity certainly meets that. Lots and lots of impairments that obesity causes. Number two, does it demonstrate characteristic signs or symptoms? Meaning, you know, if a person has uh, some type of bronchitis, do they have a cough or a rails or wheezes when you listen to their chest? Of course. So with obesity, we can do a body condition score, for example, to see a sign or symptom. Of course, we can go further than that. And then the third thing that the AMA says, when, if we're going to define a disease, it has to cause harm or morbidity. Well, 
Courtney, we can leave, give you a laundry list of evidence-based things that are harms and damage that obesity causes in dogs and cats. So again, you know, I would encourage you to go to petobesityprevention.org. Take a look at our, our statement. See if you agree. If you work with a state or even an, another organization, let us know. You know, if your organization is not already on the list that we have on the website, uh, definitely get in contact with one of us as authors and we will be happy to walk you through it. So well, we, we, we got to do a better job. Well, no, I, I love that. Not only is it important to define, define and recognize and acknowledge, but also having the resources so that pet parents can actually go to have somewhere to to bounce ideas off and to see what what actually is happening and also to help guide them through the process. And that's essentially what I'd love to do through the rest of this conversation is anybody listening, I'd love to just kind of go through, again, we talked about sort of a, a master plan or a master class kind of, and how to prevent pet obesity. And I'd love to do that on the flip side. Will you stay with us? We're just going to pause for a few brief moments. And when we come back, will you go through these steps with me? Absolutely. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, everybody, hold on one second. We're joined by Dr. Ernie Ward. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some really detailed and sequential processes on how do we fight this battle of pet obesity. Stay right with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Michelle Fern here. You know how they say you are what you eat? Well, guess what? Same is true for your fur babe. I have a grandpa dog, as I call him. Mr. Z is now 14. And over the years, you know, he's had his issues. But lately, he's had a lot of allergies. And I've recently put him on a solid gold diet. And I have noticed a major difference. And right now, Solid Gold is offering an amazing offer to all of our listeners. Yep, by visiting solidgoldpet.com slash pet life for 30% off your first order. Go ahead and take advantage of this great offer. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. We're with Dr. Ward. It's been a fascinating discussion so far, and I'm just so happy that he's with us today on Anything Possible because we're talking about pet obesity, and he's mentioned so many awesome things in terms of resources from a book called The Clean Pet Food Revolution to PetObesityPrevention.org and, and defining scales and, and how you recognize pet obesity. But right now, we're going to kind of go through sequentially. If you think or if you're listening and you want to join this fight or if you're you're looking at your own pet and concerned about pet obesity, we're going to go through stepwise, how do you do this? And right before we went to break, Dr. Ward mentioned basically step one, which is recognition and acknowledge and how to acknowledge pet obesity. A lot of pet parents out there and even veterinarians listening are saying, you know, just like what you said, Dr. Ward, I'm familiar with a one to five scale or a one to nine scale or a one to seven scale. When you talk about, could you do me a favor? Talk about number one, step one, acknowledging pet obesity and what is your preferred scale. And then after you tell me what your preferred scale is, just give me a couple of highlights on how somebody can find out where their dog fits in that scale. Yeah, it's a great question. And certainly our consensus statement is the one to nine whole integer body condition score. Whole integer. Yeah. Okay. And again, this is in alignment with Wasava or the World Small Animal Veterinary Medical Association that we work very closely with. In fact, we've got a couple of really exciting things uh, for next year. So yes, so globally, it's a one to nine scale. But Courtney, the most important thing 
is awareness, recognition. Awareness. Most okay. pet owners are in denial. Most okay. pet owners don't know what to look for. And look, you know, you and I go on TV and we say, hey, you know, take the touch test. Like, you know, if you can't feel the ribs easily, right? Or if there's an extra right. fat around the hips, we do that, right? If there's a tummy sag, those are really gross indicators. And by gross, I don't mean yuck. Right. I mean, like, you know, right, just right. really broad. And right. so as a medical professional, we really need to, we need better tools. And we're working on this. I mean, we, this is an active area of, of research and interest for most of, of our board members. We've been working on lots of technological solutions, whether, you know, these are electroimpedance, which we've worked with, you know, several uh, groups over the years to try to make that happen. We're now using, without getting to a lot of details, visual morphological uh, interpretation. So basically, we could take some type of image and get an assessment of body fat. All this is very complicated, you know, but it's doable for sure. But let's get back to this awareness. So the first thing every pet owner and every veterinary professional should do during every exam is a body condition score. It's really that simple. What I find is during the busy hustle bustle of our daily practice, we just don't take the time the 30 seconds, quite frankly, to, to do this, to write down a number. But yet, if we would start there, what happens when you are forced to think of something, then it allows you to then create an action. But Courtney, if we never think of it, if we dismiss it, if we ignore it, then we never are challenged by action. So if you put down a BCS of eight or nine, you've now defined and diagnosed obesity in a dog or cat you are obligated to do something. And I think that's really where vets are like, look, I've got to deal with the, the limping. I don't have time to deal with the weight. Or what I think is most important, I think vets are frustrated because all we can say is feed less, exercise more. And you know what? It doesn't work. They get tired of selling a dog, a bag of therapeutic weight loss diet. The dog comes back six months later. It's gained weight, right? I mean, so all this frustration just equals to inaction. And this is why, again, we go back to why is it so important to declare this a disease? Because we're trying to raise awareness. What, what we've seen in the human medical, in the U.S. human medical field and in Europe, once they declared it a disease, doctors took it more seriously. And people often said, oh, that's because they were worried about liability. It really wasn't. It was because doctors love to treat disease. We are here to help. And so right. suddenly when you put that on the radar, you know, and what I think will happen in veterinary medicine, quite frankly, Courtney, is we will, the next generation of vets, as we move forward towards this formal declaration of obesity as a disease and, and companion animals, you're going to have an entire generation of vets that they treat it as a disease. Not old timers like me or you, right? Right, right, you know? right. I mean, we're going to have young veterinary students who are always taught that this is a disease. It will change how we do it. But more importantly, it'll drive industry, pharma, food to give us better solutions. Right now, I can tell you, I go to technology companies and say, hey, help me with the diagnosis of this. And they're like, ah, is, you know, we're really focused on kidney disease. We're really on allergic dermatitis, on corneal disruptions, right? It's like, what? You know, they're like, well, diseases, not, you know, I mean, this is just people feeding their dog too many treats. I wish it were that simple. So awareness, I know we've gone on too long, but body condition score. And if you're a pet owner listening today and your vet does not write down a BCS score on your physical exam report, you need to demand it. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be that blunt. 
No, I love it. And, and that is genius. Listen, and you know, you, you alluded to it earlier, you know, as a surgeon, that is something that we can get put the blinders on is, okay, we have a dog who has a decreased quality of life because of a lack of mobility, uh, whether it's a, they're limping because they tore a ligament or a fracture or, uh, or osteoarthritis or whatever it is, the goal is to regain mobility. But I, I know that maintaining a lean body condition is part of that conversation with mobility. And, you know, when you have pet parents who say to me, you know, you recommended that my dog lose some weight because of obesity or because my dog is overweight. My dog lost weight and it's like I've got a brand new dog. You know, Absolutely. their lifestyle is just totally different. And you're right. We did kind of dive into number one a little bit too too much. Let's see if we can touch base on, you mentioned diseases. I always think, and this could be number two or number three, but number two, talk to me about how important it is that you look at obesity as a disease, but also make sure that we screen for underlying uh, diseases because you could be trying to fight obesity, but it's an uphill battle because there's something simmering underneath the surface that you don't know about. Yeah, without a doubt, hormonal imbalances are the biggest complicating factor for obesity, particularly in dogs. And by that, I mean thyroid dysfunction. And so hypothyroidism is still largely misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, underdiagnosed in our canine patients. I can't tell you how many second opinion dogs with obesity that I've seen, and they really they only did a total T4. And guys, you're not going to diagnose hypothyroidism often enough if you just do a total T4. And so by the time you do a to, you know you do a total thyroid panel right. and you look at free T4 and T and I, I do T3 as well. But regardless, you at least need to free T4 by equilibrium dialysis. And then suddenly these dogs that this 115 pound Labrador retriever, you're like, oh, wow, well, there's the problem, right? I mean, if it's a Datsun, just go ahead and, and make sure. I mean, there are certain right. breeds that we need to be testing for without a doubt. Right. Now, now, that's one thing. The other thing that I do, especially on a referral basis, is I look at hormones that maybe aren't always tested. And so that means cortisol. And I like cortisol as sort of a marker for a, what's the current status. And then it gives me a, a temporal benchmark moving forwards because I will see as dogs lose weight, as cats lose weight, more so dogs, but that cortisol level drops, which is again, indicator that there's less physiological stress. And so cortisol, of course, drives so many of the metabolic pathways to store fat more efficiently. It actually increases appetite. So we've got to be super careful around that. The other thing that I look at is C-reactive protein. Uh, I really don't want to get into the weeds, but I do believe uh, that so, it's- a, That's okay. It, that's where I live. I live yeah, in the weeds. So this yeah, is it, perfect. <laughs> it's a it's a validated biomarker. You know, certainly I think a lot of vets, I, th I think I, actually the next generation of vets will wake up to C-reactive protein. We also use it to look at current inflammatory status in an obese dog in particular because I think we have just a little better validation with dogs uh, than cats. I also look at all the amines, so fructosamine in particular, A1Cs in cats, because those can give me early insight into, hey, there's chronic inflammation going on here that may be leading to, again, and I use the term prediabetes. Uh, people that know me know my fight for defining prediabetes in cats uh, for the past 15 years. We're getting closer every every year. But regardless, you know, these are the types of other biomarkers. And one other quick thing too, just to note, there are a lot of metabolic disruptors that are present in the environment. I know we talked about environment earlier, but BPA, bisphenol you know, A, is one of those things in plastics. And this is why you, you want to get BPA-free water bottles, right? And all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff you're hearing now. But there's a lot of cheap plastic water and food bowls for dogs and cats out there that probably contain BPA. And BPA evidence linking uh, to obesity is very, very strong. So again, I would say, let's watch the environment closely for any of those little things that may 
be causing metabolic hormonal disruption leading to obesity. Genius. That's absolutely genius. We, there is that push. And when we talk about that, uh, the concept of one health, right? The one health, uh, human, dog, cat, regardless of the species. We also talk about how all of us are inextricably linked, whether it's humans, pets, and the environment, the global health of all of us. And I think plastics is a really important part of that discussion. Well, um, and, and one quick thing there. Yes. So, so back in 2016, I think it was, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control for the U.S. government, they convened a special One Health Obesity Summit in Atlanta, Georgia, where they're located. And so a bunch of us were invited down so it was a bunch of pet obesity experts with a bunch of human obesity experts to talk about what it was. It was really funny because I'm used to sitting on One Health panels as you are, Courtney, where we look at companion animals as the sentinel species, right? So right. we say, ah, it's going to pop up first. Like flame retardant uh, cancers popped up in cats, okay? So things that they were putting in furnitures and mobile homes, we were seeing this type of thyroid cancer in cats years and years ago. It was the sentinel species for humans, okay? So getting off track, but here was what was I found quite interesting was that they were like, hey, wait, humans are the sentinel species for companion animals because they were saying, look, the lifestyle of the human caretaker is actually leading to or contributing to the pet obesity, not the opposite, right? Now, of course, I quickly spun this to talk about things like plastics and and all types of, you know, diseases that we're we're not really thinking about, you know, microbiome influences. In fact, we know that when you live with a dog or a cat, your microbiome, your gut intestinal flora is influenced by that species. So there's also some really exciting research that we're doing uh, currently with a, a company called Animal Biome, Dr. Holly Gantz out in California, where our office is located in Berkeley and just, just some fascinating stuff that's going on. So yeah, there's a lot of translational there, but the one health aspect is something we really need to embrace more. Well, listen, I did want to ask you this, but I wasn't sure if we were going to get to it. But listen, let's dive right into it. This is going to be a pretty hard question, but I wanted to get your opinion on it, that there's been some discussions in the Journal of Nutrition and some in psychology journals about the behaviors of pet parents with obese pets. And they've talked about this idea of overhumanizing, where work and exercise isn't viewed as important when their pet is looked at as like them or when it's looked at as as a human where they're getting lots of treats, they're not getting enough exercise. And finally, just recently in the University of Copenhagen, looked at the body mass index of pet parents who had obese pets, and it turned out that they also had a higher body mass index. Essentially, when you put it as, as if I could speak plainly, what they found is that when it came to dogs who were obese, they also saw pet parents who were obese as well. This is challenging because it's something that I think a lot of veterinarians have encountered, have been sensitive to, and have really been particularly sympathetic towards. But it's still a very challenging conversation, and I wanted to ask you how you navigate that scenario if you are you know if your focus your attention is about the health of the pet you are seeing an obese pet but then also you see the pet parents and they may not be in the picture of health as well due to obesity or being overweight yeah and and look this is something that we have been very vocal about for a long time and i'm going to give you my opinion it may not be one that everybody wants to hear but i this hear is, you yeah so this is old old research this goes back to a german study nearly 20 years ago that said oh the people with obesity are, are they more likely to have uh, a pet with obesity right and of course here's where first of all you have complete bias in your data set because a the majority of 
adults in Europe, uh, well, I shouldn't say all European countries, but certainly let's, let's speak to U.S. and Canada since that's where most of our listeners will be. The majority right. of U.S. adults are overweight or have obesity. So right there, what does that tell you? It doesn't tell you anything. If the majority of people have that, I mean, you can do some clever statistical analysis and tease mm -hmm. out certain things, but the reality is if most of the people are already in this one cohort, you're already completely biased. So I don't really see the value there, right? Okay, okay, all you did was conclude that, okay, independently we know that there are more, or, or at least over, a little over half, of the dogs and cats are overweight or have obesity. We know of similar types of, of data supports human adults and even childhood now. So I don't see where that mixes together. The other thing I would caution veterinarians is we are not there. We are not human physicians. We are not right. human healthcare providers. hundred okay, percent. Uh, and by definition, what you've just described is actually judging a client. And we're, this is where we get into stigma and bias because what we have to do as a veterinarian, and I would argue this is what our human colleagues should do as well, is we need to focus on the species that we are the expert in, okay? Now, I have some crosstalk, you know, between my coaching and, and personal training and all that, like you, right? But I, I don't go into the exam room and say, well, let's talk about your diet, Mrs. Smith, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, it's inappropriate and, and it's distracting. So I really want us as a veterinary profession to, to focus on our patients, our responsibility first and foremost. This is why we're doing a lot of research right now at the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention around weight bias and stigma, because we think that what you've just described, Courtney, actually is happening. And so these veterinarians are going into the room and they're seeing a person who's suffering from obesity themselves, and then they don't want to have the conversation for fear of inadvertently you know, offending the client. I mean, I've written about this for almost 20 years, and, and this is a real, this is friction, this is tension that's created in every exam uh, that has these factors at play. And I think that as a profession, we really have got to, we have to be able to set aside our judgment of the client. We really have to go beyond blaming the client or blaming the pet for this and say, look, here's what we've got, right? I mean, like I, I, it kind of drives me crazy sometimes. A person that comes in to a human doctor's office and they are diagnosed with prostate cancer, Typically, the physician isn't going to say, well, did you eat a lot of processed red meat? You know, well, there you go. Can't do much for you. Of course, we don't say that. But yet, if you apply that same methodology, a, a dog or cat comes in, it's a 115 pound golden retriever. And we're looking at the owner who's 350 pounds. So they're suffering from obesity. And we just say, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to help you guys because you obviously can't help yourselves. Again, we've got to do better. This is a disease state. We need better tools. We need a better treatment. Again, I just I want to be careful of judging the pet owner in these situations and focus squarely on the patient that I am obligated and licensed to treat, which is the dog or the cat or the horse or the whatever. Very well said. I think if you approach almost every situation, and that's what I try to do every every day, whether you're talking about pet obesity or any sort of disease state, if you place it pet first, what's the best for the pet, then everything I think falls into line. Your conversations with pet parents, uh, your treatment goals, your decision making, your medical strategy, if you place it, what is best for the pet first, I think everything seems to fall in line. Before we get off track though. And, and, and Courtney, running, one, one yes, quick please, thing, let please. me just just yes. one quick jump for veterinary colleagues. Here's a bit of advice that you should apply to everything in your life and, and pet owners. You can take this as well. That is approach every situation with a success outcome mindset. So meaning success that when I outcome mindset, 
when I look at a pet patient with suffering from horrible obesity, I don't say, well, they're never going to fix this. They're never going to be able to overcome this. You have to go in with a success outcome. You have to say, we can do this. You know, it's a positive mindset. And I think that what happens is we go in with a defeatist attitude. We've judged and we have stigma and bias towards the pet owner. We believe it's a lifestyle only issue. And therefore, well, they haven't done anything to date and they've gotten themselves in this fix. We have to now somehow be able to jujitsu our mindset and say, wait, how do we flip this around and say, of course, we're going to succeed with this cat. The most important thing, though, is then how do you deal with failure? Because in life, whether you're a surgeon, whether you're an internal medicine, whether you're a general practitioner, you know what? You don't win every case. You don't solve every dilemma. And you really have to then develop a coping mechanism that says, hey, you know what? I'm still really good enough. I'm valuable. What I'm doing is very important and essential. And I understand that I don't win every time. And that does not defeat my self-esteem and what I'm trying to do my purpose. That's wonderful. I think that idea, we just talked about One Health and referenced that, but I definitely think mental and emotional health, particularly in the veterinary profession, that's a completely separate topic, but uh, particularly in the veterinary medical profession is so, so important. And that idea where you start out winning, where you start out as a success outcome mindset is key because like you said, you're not going to win every. You're not going to win every case. And veterinary medicine, mother nature, they will humble you very quickly if you feel like you're going to win every case. So thank you for saying that. It's really important for veterinarians and everybody's mental health. I've kind of put you in a little bit in a corner here because there are some people listening who are saying, "Wait a minute, they haven't even talked about how much I should feed my pet, right?" right so right, here's right. why don't we do this? We're going to do some quick hits. And again, I know this is way more complicated. We know that we are staying superficial. But I'm going to ask you some questions and give me, if you don't mind, just your hot takes on it. Number one, okay, I'm going to hit it. They have their diet right now, a commercial diet. They purchased it at home. In your opinion, and there's been some research as far as thermogenesis and things like that, how often should you be feeding your pet if you have uh, a pet who's overweight or obese? Yep, I would say as often as you are comfortable. <laughs> okay. So, meaning that, look, I, and I think that you can interpret the data of frequent feedings versus, yeah, look, and one of the approaches I use is intermittent fasting. I've been a big fan of that for the past 15 years in my pet patients. In pets too. Absolutely. And in my own personal awesome. life. Uh, but regardless, and there's some good reasons for that, but you know, regardless, what you want to do is you've got to adapt and somehow interlink with their lifestyle. So if the if you are asking a pet owner to feed their dog or cat five or six times a day, which could be ideal in certain cases, and they work, you know, two jobs, they've got kids with soccer or whatever, guess what? You've already set them up for failure. And this will lead to discontinuance and failure to comply with your recommendation. So I always start with Let's talk about your lifestyle. What's a day look like in the typical life of Mrs. Smith or Mr. Jones? And let's now work within those parameters. That's the first and most important thing when it comes to feeding frequency. Because, Courtney, I see so many vets, they go, well, you know, I told them to feed five times a day and the wheels came off and everything went south. You know, sometimes simple advice like that that they cannot adhere to is what derails your recommendation. So I'm trying, to make, it. It, I'm trying to make it easy and successful. No, it makes sense because that's part of, it goes beyond science, right? So we know that we're both kind of alluding to the fact that science does, to a certain extent, point to 
more frequent, smaller feedings inducing a, an, a higher energy output or higher energy expenditure. We'll get into more, we can get into more detail, but I think what you're bringing into it, which I think is genius is because we're talking about the pet health community and the pet health setting, it's about forming a partnership with that pet owner and forming and understanding that it's not the dog who's feeding himself. And so creating an environment in which you're not going to win that scenario by making these suggestions that are just not realistic. I think that's part of this entire process is and part of fighting the battle is creating a partnership and a working relationship with that entire family so that you have a greater chance for success. That's one quick hit. How many times a day to feed? Number two, how many treats are allowed? Now, I think you and I have that number that's been reinforced constantly of, as far as uh, less than 10% of their overall diet. But I'm very curious, what's been your experience and what do you recommend? How many treats are allowed throughout the day? Depends on the treat. So okay. if you're using a crunchy, healthy, single source vegetable, baby carrots, sliced cucumbers, zucchini, so forth, you can give that 100 times a day. I'm exaggerating, of course, but you can give right. that many, many times, which is why you hear us lean into those treats so often, because we know that, you know, people have often asked me, and look, I've worked on these projects before with automated feeders. Like, look, Ernie, the solution here is simple. Take the person out of the feeding equation. I agree. If you could have a robot dispense your dog's food and treats throughout the day, they would only be fed exactly what they want. But that's not why we love dogs and cats. Part of our expression of love and affection is feeding. So if you take that out of the equation, Courtney, I think you've damaged and devalued the human-animal bond. Call right. me crazy, but what I find is that when we use the automated feeders to do the six times a day dispensing and so forth, people are desperate for that interaction and they go around the feeder and give them extra treats. So we actually find them to be highly ineffective in many instances because the people can't help themselves. They want to then give extra goodies because they feel so bad because they're not feeding them. You, you get the picture here, right? Yes, of course. So, so I, again, getting back to this whole, how many treats, I would say, let's talk about what kind of treat it is. Let's get rid of the junk food treats. So many of the treats, I mean, going back to, gosh, I think that was in 2000 and no, I don't, maybe 2004, 2005. I did a, a nightline that used to be an ABC news show. I talked about an, I did an expose on the hidden sugar and treats. So you've really got to evaluate these treats and look at what's being added to them in addition to all the junk stuff, but just the calories, right? And the sugars that are then driving that dopamine response to say, wow, I want more. So really be careful with the treats. I love vegetables for this exact reason. Single ingredient treats, I think are, are better in many instances, but you know, higher protein, you know, lower carb, certainly low to no sugar. Those are kind of simple guidelines, but man, you can't beat a baby carrot. No, my dog, when I was growing up, loved raw cauliflower. I have no idea yeah, why. Yeah. I just would throw it in the air and he would just, I mean, go crazy for it, which yep. is beautiful because like you said, you know, single ingredient, low calorie treats. And now we've hit on sort of the the flagship question that everybody's trying to, to kind of figure out. Uh, I just spoke with a firefighter. He said, you know, my dog was uh, obese and I started looking at his lifestyle and I realized I was giving him, you know, it was a lab, a yellow lab. I was only giving him a cup of food day. And then I looked at my cup and it was one of those slurpy size cups from a convenience <laughs> right. store. And he said, once I realized what a cup truly was, then it really helped my dog to you know lose weight. So here we are at the flagship question. I know it's it, we're running out of time, but number one, what food should we be feeding? How much of it should we feed? And that's really what a lot of people are wondering is, hey, what should right. I feed and how much should I be feeding of it? 
Yeah, and I wish there was a perfect diet. Uh, you know, certainly I have a pet food company, and I, I don't what, think it's. Would a you perfect, mind giving us the name of that? What's the yeah, What's the pet food company? Yeah, name? we're you know, look, you know, I'm a longtime vegan vegetarian my entire adult life, so I'm a. It's a plant based. It's the world's. You know, we, we're a big uh, plant based uh, pet food company called Wild Earth out of uh, Berkeley, wow. California. So a lot okay, of cool Wild Earth out of Berkeley, California. Yeah, WildEarth.com. But anyway, uh, that plug aside, even though I love our food very much, we certainly know there's no perfect food for every individual. So. So, you know, I want to get that out there. I think sometimes, you know, people think, oh, this is the one end all be all. And while I'm very proud, and I think it's great. I think it's, you know, for me, it's the best, but right. it doesn't mean it's best for every patient on the planet. So Got two it. things, mistakes that people make. Number one, they don't measure the food. You alluded to the cup. You really need to, if you're really serious about helping your dog or cat lose weight, you have to weigh the food. Food is, you know, when you feed it by volume, so if you actually take a cup, you're automatically inserting dead space. So air and, and the, the, the irregularities of the kibble, you know, the, so forth. So we did a study back in 2006. We took the top 10 cat foods on the market at the time. So the meow mix, fancy feast, that kind of stuff, right? And we, we wanted to see if you overfed a little bit each day, what would equal one pound of weight gain in a cat at the end of a year, right? And we found it was 10 extra kibbles, 10 tiny pieces of meow mix or cat chow a day is a pound of weight gain at the end of the year for a cat. So you see how precision in feeding, and this is why we say weigh the food whenever possible. It takes very little time to get the little cup out, put it on a kitchen scale, make sure you're okay, boom, you're done. The second thing is, what everybody really wants to know is the formulation. Look, the evidence is pretty clear to me and we can spin it any way we want, but there's a preponderance of evidence for humans and dogs and cats that show higher protein, higher fiber diets, promote weight loss, promote adipose tissue or fat tissue loss, and promote lean muscle mass. So if we're looking at at losing the fat and preserving the muscle, I'm always going to check down to high protein, high fiber, which incidentally is exactly the formula that I developed for my pet food company because I was like, how do we start to at least help maintain a healthy weight and maybe even help some of those that need to lose a little weight. But you know, again, I think it's high protein, high fiber. And here's the trick. You have to change your dietary approach every 90 days if you're not seeing the response you want. There are physiological adaptations that come in. You mentioned set points with uh, leptin earlier. Well, there's a lot of set points in the body and right. we are basically designed to maintain a certain morphology, a certain amount of body fat and muscle and so forth. And so when we try to interrupt that and lose that extra body fat, well, the body adapts very quickly. So in 90 days, if you've tried a high protein, high fiber diet, we usually start out at 80% RER, arresting energy requirements. You know, all this formulas, if you're a pet owner, you can take a look you know, on the website, but if you're a veterinarian, you know what RER is. We start at 80% at 90 days. If I'm not seeing demonstrable or appreciable weight loss, then I shut it down to 70%, but I never reduce any diet less than 70% RER, or we risk what I always call malnutrition by caloric restriction malnutrition okay. by caloric restriction. So if after 90 days of 70% RER of whatever diet I do, I flip it. So now if it was a high protein, high fiber, I go low protein, high fiber. I mean, and most vets do this, Courtney, they put it on autopilot. They say, come back in six months or a year or whatever. And of course the dog or cat gains weight and they blame the diet. It's a disaster recipe. So you've got to be checking these dogs and cats frequently, typically weigh them once a month but at least every three months and then make dietary adjustments. 
Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. That's awesome. You covered a lot of ground there from the formulation to well, either from the formulation to the ideal diet and uh, one, thing, one thing, too. Let me yes. jump in. Uh, yes. There are a couple of supplements that do uh, we have to say because the evidence is very clear. Without a doubt, L-carnitine should be added to, in my opinion, every maintenance diet in the United States, but certainly in any therapeutic weight loss diet. I went ahead in my food, my maintenance diet, I just added L-carnitine to the desired levels. L-carnitine is something I take every day, and I take it for two reasons. One, of course, lean muscle mass preservation. So it helps, you know, an older guy like me, I'm in my mid-50s, I want to make sure that I maintain the muscle mass that I have. Because we all know that as we age, we are going to lose muscle mass naturally. So I want to tell, keep tell it as long as possible. <laughs> all right. So L-carnitine, but also L-carnitine has been shown to improve cognition, focus, and attention, and may have a role in delaying cognitive dysfunction in dogs. So we're starting to see a lot of exciting research around L-carnitine. The second thing that you need to add into your diet, if it's not already there, find it, are omega-3 fatty acids. And again, same thing. I went ahead and added high levels in our dog food because I believe so strongly in the science behind this. And we know that omega-3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory, and we're trying to get this omega-6 to omega-3 ratio back in check, because when that ratio is out of flux, so meaning that you're feeding a high wheat-based diet, you know, a lot of of omega-6s that are found typically, you know, in, in starches, and so suddenly now, when you have this high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, it causes inflammation in the body, which causes what hormone did we start out this whole conversation? Cortisol, right? right? So cortisol drives appetite, drives fat deposition in the body. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is reduce inflammation because we know that's a back-end way to get into uh, weight loss. Jeez, that's fantastic. Uh, a lot of people are focused on that, particularly omega-3 fatty acids. And I always caution people in terms of supplements that more doesn't equal better. And so, of course, there's those benefits. I, I see, unfortunately, a couple of times and this a couple of times per week where we'll have sort of an overdose of these supplements. Just make sure that as you're giving them and, and this, you know, when I talk to pet parents is that you're giving them at appropriate doses. I really like this, uh, the suggestions for L-carnitine and omega-3 fatty acids, but even more important, I love how you've just detailed starting from the top to the bottom, you know, just a comprehensive analysis of how someone can battle pet obesity right along with the veterinarian, forming a partnership, looking at awareness, the biomarkers, and what to feed, right? What to feed and how often to feed it, including treats. This discussion is so important. And so vital to the health of, to health of all pets. I would love to have a part two sometime, uh, Doctor Ward. Would you ever mind coming back so that we can even get deeper into this discussion? I would, and I'll tell you, we need to talk, or you need to cover on your show exercise uh, because this is really important right now. There's a cat that's a viral internet sensation. Oh, yeah, cinder block. Yeah, cinder block. Like, and and listen, I'm going to tell you guys really simple. It works like this: weight loss in humans and dogs is about sixty to seventy percent diet and about thirty to forty percent physical activity exercise in cats because they have completely distinct metabolic energy pathway. It's 90% diet and 10% exercise. exercise right. And this is why I really, I got to tell you, I'm not a super big fan of this because that cat looks stressed. And if a cat is stressed, 
what hormone are they secreting? Exactly. Cortisol, it's not helping the problem. Again, when I have a morbidly be- a cat with morbid obesity, like cinder block, the first thing I do is we work on the diet. Once we then get them down, you know, to maybe around 16 pounds or so, you know, get some of the weight off the joints, which is why they're doing this underwater treadmill anyway, which is very unnatural for cats to walk on an underwater treadmill anyway. Um, right. but, but I want to then start to focus on the physical. So it's about 90, 10, uh, 90% uh, diet. Diet, 10% exercise for cats, 60, 70% diet. You know, again, Courtney, you know from your bodybuilding days, your physique uh, yeah. exhibition, you knew yes. that you, six packs are born in the kitchen, not in the gym. Oh, 100%. And I always talk about, you know, the idea of making sure that diet and exercise are an integral part, fortunately for me, and, 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 and maybe I'm in a bubble, but the majority of my clients are just, they're extremely active. And it may be just because of where I am in, in California or the types of pet parents that I'm seeing, but their goals are to regain their pet's mobility. And whether their pet has torn a ligament or has a joint that hurts or has a particular condition. The goals that we set for ourselves are how do we get their quality of life back to where it was before? Going on these three-mile hikes, going on these four-mile hikes, swimming at the beach and having fun out in nature and communing with nature. And so fortunately, I see that. And because of that, I find that they're really (laughs) active on the exercise front. But I'm going to speak for the rest of the country. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) In general practice, the real challenge are the people that just say, well, old Joe, he hurt his knee and therefore Therefore, he is sentenced to the rest of his life suffering. And and so I wish that everybody would pursue cruciate surgery. I wish that everybody would pursue weight loss, but so many people just give up. They accept it as normal. It's not a disease. Their vet's not talking about it. They abandon all hope. They say, this is Joe's life from here on out. And of course, Joe is now the 115-pound Labrador whose life is cut short. And the last six years of his life before he died at age 10 or 12 were miserable because he could barely get up. He couldn't ride in the truck. You know, you know the story. And that's really real life America. And that's what we're trying to fight. We're trying to raise awareness and give people real actionable tools. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, just the picture that you paint sounds like just the excruciating to listen to that overweight lab who just, you know, is that's his life. You know, it is really you put a really clear picture on that. And this is part of the conversation. This is why we're having this conversation. This is why I'm so happy I got a chance to speak with you today. Thank you for joining Anything Possible. And like I said, if you have the opportunity, I, like you said, let's jump back in for a part two sometime in the in the very near future. Would you you wouldn't mind that? Absolutely. And you know, Thanks Courtney, so much. I love this because anything is possible in the world of veterinary medicine and you are out there showing the way. Thanks a lot. This is perfect. Everybody, that is Dr. Ernie Ward. Certainly check out uh, Dr. Ernie Ward and PetObesityPrevention.org. Uh, certainly check out WildEarth.com. He's everywhere. The, the clean pet food revolution. Those are just three, but literally Dr. Ward is is everywhere and, and, and fighting the good fight and spreading the good news about pets You know, on a variety of platforms. So he is not hard to find. Thanks again, Dr. Ward. And um, everybody, just real quick, and and I'm going to do this real quick, but if you're listening out there, don't be afraid to stop, pause, rewind this podcast because Dr. Ward dropped a lot of gems in that right at the end there from starting with awareness 
then going to acknowledge obesity as a disease. We talked about hormonal imbalances, working with your veterinarian, checking for hypothyroidism, checking those cortisol levels, talking about plastics, microplastics in food. Then we even jumped into feeding frequency. It's not just twice a day, not just five times a day. It's about lifestyle and working within your lifestyle to improve success. We talked about treats and lean treats, single ingredient treats he touched on, how much feeding, what type of food. He definitely talked about the fact that high protein, high fiber. And then of course, nothing can improve unless it gets measured, right? Nothing can improve unless it gets measured. And so we talked about making sure that we are weighing these dogs at least, or weighing these dogs and cats at least once every 90 days or even more frequently to monitor for weight loss. And then finally, with one of the crucial gems he dropped is supplements and talking about L-carnitine and omega-3. So I'm just so happy that he joined us today on Anything Possible. We covered a lot of ground. And thank you so much for everybody listening. Please join us for the next episode. We'll continue to talk to very captivating and fascinating people. And just keep in mind, there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.